This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Because we want to talk about y'all is hip hop. The stories of hip-hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. Kevin Beecham, lover of lyrics. <laughs> one, two, one, two, party people in the place to be. My name is MC Kumo D from the Treacherous Three. My man LA Sunshine in the place to be. We gonna get a little something straight here in the place to be. How many people think Busy B Starsky rocked the house? I hear that in the place to be, yeah. Do it I alone. give it to the man, he know how to rock the crowd. But when it come to having rhymes, no way you can fuck around. And I'm gonna prove that right now. One, two, one for the treble, two for the bang. Come on, easy, Leah, let's rock the plane. One, two, one, two, doing the do now. Hold on, busy B, I don't mean to be bold, but put that all did a bar bullshit on hold. We gonna get right Definitely one of my favorites would be the Kumo D when he battled Busy B. Well, battle's kind of a, a loose term in this case. The contest where he uh, went at Busy B from the 81 Rappers Convention. And I remember I was living in Germany at the time and I was on the school bus and some kid from New York just came back there with the Walkman, the headphones, was like, you gotta hear this. And I was like, all right, all right. And I put it on and I was like, I had never heard that kind of him sing before. No one had it. That wasn't really hadn't been done. It's like to hear someone rapping that technically well, but also directly assaulting someone like that way. So uh, that was a, a significant impression on me as a, as a young hip hop lover and at the time an MC. Rhyme after rhyme, always wanna know your zodiac sign. You change the shit to the favorite jeans. Come on, busy B, tell me what that means. Hold on, brother man, don't you say nothing. I'm not finished yet, I gotta tell you something. Too hot to chat, I'm here to rock a spot. I'm gonna rock your ass whether you like it or not. He made it I'll up take a title right on the spot. How can I take a title? You ain't. You're not number one, you're not even the best. And you can't win no real MC contest. Celebrity club and bullshit like those. In the early years of hip hop, of course, there'd be some sort of like, you know, comments and, and, and things being made about people, but it was more about the, the live show. It was like, who had the best sound system? Choreograph, dance steps, all these things are part of this. No one was really focusing the whole time. It's like, I'm going to be as lyrical as possible and direct it to you personally. Point out all your flaws as a human and as an MC. It was, it was even shocking to the people in attendance, like, Kumo D, that wasn't right, man. That wasn't right. You know, like... <laughs> People were like, whoa, this guy's like getting personal. So it's definitely a, a big shift of like what the MC battle could be. And Kumo D is, you know, obviously like the, the one who's pretty much pioneered and created that format. Don't stop, cause you know I'm an MC supreme and I'm one of a kind. If you search real hard, I'm sure you'll find. Ain't another MC who can rhyme like this. Not your mother or your father, aunt, brother or your sis. Sit back and enjoy, don't try to bite. Cause it's very hard to say any rhyme I write. But do it like this, do it like that. Concentrate real hard and get the rhyme down.
about that no matter how hard you try you'll see you'll get your mind in the mind and can't say it like me but you want to be busy want to be honey you know we want to be another kumo d so let's all chat because it was like the professional division christmas rappers convention it's like christmas eve or christmas day um in 81 kumo d was sort of just there like as a host or whatever he wasn't even in the contest it was like you know the foursome c's cold crush Johnny Roy and Rayvon and Busy B. But Busy B was kind of known for like his, his gloating and talking and about being the best. He wasn't really a lyricist. He was a showman. He could host a great show. And so he got on stage. He was talking about how he was the greatest, the best, and all this. The trophy's mine already. Performing is a formality. I automatically going to win because I'm the best. Everyone loves me. Doing that kind of thing. And Kumo D kind of got frustrated. He was like, okay, I got to show this guy what MSing is really about. So he signed up lateness so he's a late entry is a common misconception people think there's um, a guy on stage talking they think it's busy B it's not it's LA sunshine from pictures 3 who's saying all the comments like that like tell people to shut up they're saying to shut up he's not saying it's Kumo D seeing people in the crowd who are complaining about why is he going at busy B so personally so to shut up and let Kumo D do his thing apparently busy B was in the basement counting his money thinking he just won so he wasn't he didn't even hear it happen so there was a second battle that they apparently had but people claimed that it was even better but no one recorded that 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 didn't get recorded so that's sort of the, the story that Treacherous 3 are kind of known as lyrical innovators and particularly Kumo D gets a lot of credit but uh, I actually think that Special K should get a lot of credit too. Treacherous 3 had already put out records but their second record was a new rap language, and that was important for creating certain kinds of techniques, Modi's fast rap style. But beyond that, in records, they were more about routines and concepts, and they weren't always just like doing the best rapping. Their, their best rapping wasn't always on their records. It was on their live shows. I was familiar with them, but didn't know that that lyrical ability was, was existing at that point. 81, that's the time that they had like At The Party, and Feel The Heartbeat was right, right around the corner, and those songs aren't that lyrically different than anything else out at the time. You had no idea that Kumo D was had this lyrical prowess that he wasn't even using on the records. So yeah, it was, it's, uh, it was, it was kind of Born in Frankfurt, Germany. Lived there until I was about two years old. We moved to El Paso, Texas for a few, like 18 months. Then we moved to Colorado for like 18 months. Then my dad went back to Germany. We stayed in um, Detroit for a while, Selfridge, Michigan for a while, Chicago for a little bit. And then we went back to Germany when I was um, seven or eight, something like that. Two different parts of Germany, Karlsruhe, Germany, and Stuttgart. And I stayed in Germany until I was 13, 14, and then I moved to Kansas. Fort Rowley, Kansas, which is by Junction City, a little small town. And then from Kansas, North Chicago, Illinois, which is like 45 minutes north of Chicago. So. Growing up in Germany, like, you know, sort of a, I, 
not considered an advantage. Like, where maybe, like, if you grew up here in the United States and you lived in the Midwest, you know, you might not get these tapes. But living in Germany on an army base, it was always new families coming in from New York. It's kind of a, a bittersweet thing. I use the word sweet reluctantly, but like all the poverty in New York was forcing families to find ways to make money, and a lot of it was joining the military. That was the way to get out. So all that was resulting in people joining the military from New York and New Jersey, and, and they bring their tapes. <laughs> You know, I was getting stuff from all over the United States. Wherever the scenes were happening, I was getting it in Germany, probably faster than kids were getting it in the United States. See, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. To the black, to the white, the red, and the brown, and the purple, and yellow. But first, I gotta bang, bang, the boogie to the boogie, say up, jump, the boogie to the bang, bang, boogie, let's rock. You don't stop, rock the rhythm, that'll make your body rock. Well, so far, you How it came to me was that my dad had to go to Indiana and he came by himself to what we call the States and he was going to miss my birthday it would have been my 10th birthday he was going to miss it because he was in his classes and back then you know I was still 9-10 but I would appreciate records as, as a gift as much as I would toys probably more so like he sent me records and so he sent me a record and that was on Rapper's Delight and it was my first time ever hearing this new form of music so I think it was kind of a double thing first I was like I miss my dad he sent me a record I was excited and there was something different and so it was just like I really cherished it so much I remember saying consciously I gotta find everything that sounds like this whatever this is let me find more of it after that those things started popping up maybe like a year later I got this radio for my birthday the sharp double cassette deck and I would walk everywhere and record. In Germany, the older kids had the tapes. Everyone's in high school. They're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And those tapes gave you status. If you got the newest tape from New York, you could be the coolest person in the in the neighborhood for a while. Because like, he has the newest music and no one else has it. And so no one would share those tapes. It was like, you had those tapes, you would keep them to yourself. So <laughs> what I would do is I would like go to the basketball courts when they're playing basketball and if they would run down court, I would snatch tapes and high speed dub them and just be like I'm watching the game and then I would like, you know, hope I didn't get, you know, I don't want to get beat up by a bunch of high school kids. So I would like just stood their tapes and dub them. Or if I knew there was a house party, I would go to the party early, super early with my radio. And when I get there, I would just be like, hey, we should just use my, and I got this really nice radio, we can use it. And they're like, all right, cool. And when I saw whoever had the new tape come in the door, I would be like, hey, you know, Rick, man, you got that new tape. It's the best tape out right now. We should play at the party, man. I'll tell you about your tape. He goes, all right, cool. And I would, I would dub it while I played it. <laughs> so I would just steal the music however I could to get copies of it. Beat Street Breakdown. Beach Street Breakdown by Melly Mel, Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five, house credited, but Melly Mel's the only MC. Of course, Beach Street is one of the first movies about hip hop, and you know, it had a pretty important cast like the Rocksteady Crew and Melly Mel. Even though in the, in the, in the movie part, 
part of the Millie Mel rapping is done by the actor in the movie, which is weird. The movie had an idea of trying to create this script of like this, the scene of New York and the poverty and the struggle of like a young graffiti artist and you know his family being against him and not wanting to go the path of graffiti. It was really about this pretty important message and a lot of kids who went through hip hop probably felt, and especially people who were living in like those states of poverty. But I don't, the movie kind of did it in a kind of cheesy Hollywood way. I feel like Melly Mel in his four minutes better wrote the script than the script itself. That was like in the first two verses. He like better wrote the movie in some ways. I'm probably being a little dramatic, but it's the writing is so great. But the last verse is just like, it's one of the, I think one of the all time best verses ever in here. Eighty-four is like the Melly Mel. He was on fire. He just came off the the message in eighty-two. In eighty-three, he had white lines in New York, New York, which were really great. But in eighty-four, he was just like he had step off. He had the truth, and he had B Street breakdown. And it's, it's funny to me because it shows you how the music business works. Because the message is popular for a lot of reasons. Like it was different. Uh, had a great hook and all these things, but it's not, it is popular for the lyric content, but it also shows that it's not just about that, because B Street Breakdown is a better song lyrically, that doesn't make it more popular, that is not going to help it go up the charts, because what he's talking about in that song is like some real, it's real crazy, like he's talking about all these world leaders, he compares like Reagan to Hitler, and he's talking about um, the government's attempts to conquer the skies, uh, lost in space, what is the word the president just forgot about Earth? Don't be a slave to no computer. It's 84. He's like talking about like, you know, like worrying about what, what technology is going to take over the world. It's pretty cutting edge for like a, me being 14 years old being like, what is this guy talking about? That engaged me to do research. School did not do that to me. But hearing Melly Mel talk about these world leaders and who's this? Who's that? And I'm like, okay, let me figure this out. What's he talking about? That was like very like exciting. Kumo D was about technique. Like he did things in a way that was a little different than other MCs. They both had great vocal present, great projection. So just the way they sounded made their words sound more important. And then this was a great bonus that the words actually were important. Because some people like, were also great writers back then, but don't have the, the charisma and projection of those guys. But Kumo D was brought by technique. I, I got really caught up in his like, his, like fast rap style. As far as Melly Mel, it was just visual. Melly Mel was painting these visual pictures. On New York, New York, when he says, he's describing the skyscrapers, and he's saying, like, buildings have something about eyes, the, the windows have eyes, and for a while he says, I didn't know what he was talking about, but now I was like, oh, he's talking about skyscrapers. Like, he's like talking about, like, the eyes looking down on you from when you're walking down the street. He never says buildings, though. When I was 13, I didn't get it, but a couple years later, I was like, oh, he's talking about skyscrapers. 
corporate power is looking down on, on the on the impoverished. On the message, he's talking about the whole thing about the guy committing suicide in, in prison. Like, he was cold and his bike swung back and forth. I remember that line. I was just like, wow. Like, that just made me feel uncomfortable. Like, I remember getting chills uh, hearing that the first time. Or like on New York, New York, about the lady putting her baby in the, the garbage can and leaving it. And he's like... The sky was crying, rain in hell, when you put your baby in the garbage pail. Like that personification of the sky crying. It was like things like that. I was like, wow. Like this guy is doing something very different than everyone else. To me, like, you know, the whole, like, gangs and poverty and all those things were just what I saw on TV. Growing up in Germany and army bases, no one was poor, per se. Everyone's pretty much the same. There wasn't a whole lot of status symbols, so I didn't really get that. So when I would hear about it in hip-hop, to me, it was almost like fantasy. It was like creative writing. It wasn't like reality rap to me yet. It wasn't like I was totally naive that it existed, but I'd never seen it to, to understand it. But moving to Chicago, I got it like immediately. Like my first day of school, I was confronted by a gang member. This had a really bad combination of things on by chance. You know, I happened to have a, my hair cut in a V. I was wearing a five-point star and red and black. The three symbols of the opposite gang of my school, purely by chance. And I was like, what, gangs? They're real? You know? <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. I've heard about it in rap. So it wasn't once I moved to, I guess, North Chicago, but I started getting the idea of entertainment merged with experiencing in real life like oh okay this is actually real things it being a reality it made the lyrics have a different kind of meaning and then i, I listened to them a lot differently and, and experienced them a little differently this king we're making that green people always say what the hell is that mean people the people who can't understand a one whole boy became a man as for the way you scream and shout one by one, I'm knocking out. Came for the way my DJ cutting. Other MCs, when you ain't say nothing. Rocking on to the break of dawn. I made cold money in time of song. I was sitting down eating my hamburger and french fries, and I hear someone go, Why are you dissing my nation? Which I didn't really know what it meant, but I knew it was confrontational. And I'm like, but the funny thing, I was just like, oh, cool, I'm going to see a fight my first day of school. God, didn't realize they were talking to me. There was this uncomfortable feeling of eyes on me. And then I was like, oh, talking to me? I wasn't even scared yet because I was just dumbfounded. Like, I didn't know what was happening. I guess he just thought that I, I was a, a hardcore gangbanger. I didn't care. And I was coming there. Then he saw that and I was like, hey, hold, on, hold, on, hold on one second. He's like still yelling. And I'm like, hold on, what? Really? And I was like, hold on one second. I just moved here from Kansas. We don't have gangs in Kansas. The haircut, that's the style where I'm from. A few days, a week or so, it'll grow out. The shirt, red and black, my mom bought it. I won't wear it again. I won't wear red and black again. The earring, if it's bothering you, when I'm done eating, I'll take it out. He didn't say a word. He didn't say anything, he just stood there. I remember just eating my hamburger, people just watching, it's like awkward. I'm <laughs> eating. Napkin, then he sits down. Then he found out somehow that I rapped. A few days later, 
I was in the hallway getting caught up on some work, and I saw him and his friends come down the hall, and they were just harassing it. It was like everybody was like pushing people, smacking kids' hats off. Some of his friends like looking at me like I was the next target. And I was just like, oh no, this is not gonna be good. And then that guy who confirmed me was like, nah, nah, that's Kev. He's from, he's from Kansas, he's cool. Hip hop really kept me out of a lot of trouble in high school. Like, I mean, like the hardest gang bangers on school would be like, yo, Kev, rap for us. <laughs> like, while they're smacking other kids around, they'd be like, oh, yo, come rap. I'd be like, all right, cool. And, like, I mean, it got to the point where I could even like joke with them. Picking on the gangsters, like we're like peers, you know, like I'm the guy that raps and the guy that beat people up. That's the same thing, right? Peers came when making that dream. People always say what the hell is that mean? People for people who can't understand. How one whole boy became the man. As for the way you scream and shout, one by one, I'm hiding out. Came for the way my DJ cut. Other MC when you ain't say nothing. I was always uh, really attracted to lyrics, even before hip hop. Like I remember learning all the words to the Casey the Sunshine Band tape. It was like my first time I learned every word to Casey the Sunshine Band. Hip hop was just the same thing. And this one day I was in the mirror and I was rapping along to whatever rap song. I don't know what it was. And then it was like this long instrumental part, and I was just in the moment, and I just started rapping. And I was like, oh, I'm rapping. These are my words. I can rap, like, I just did it, right there. And so I just, I wrote a rap. It was decent, I mean, I, I know I took bits and pieces of people, but back then everyone was doing that, even the records were taking people. But there was a guy that just moved from New York, named Steve White, AKA Romeo, and he was like, the truth. I don't know what his position was in New York, but to us, he's like a god. Like, you know, he had the tapes, he had all these things, and he took, took a liking to me. So one day he wrote a rap for me, and I remember him writing the writing the rap for me, and tell me, but he wouldn't say it for me. He was like, learning how to say this is gonna give you your own style. So even though I wrote it, you're gonna have to learn how to use it and probably change words around and make it work for you. But I don't know if he thought about how to be a teacher of rap, but that's how I learned to, to develop my own rhythm and style and voice. And so when I moved to uh, Kansas. I was getting more into breakdancing. That's when breakdance was taking off, and I joined this breakdance crew. We did like uh, car washes. I would wash a car, and we have we breakdance while you got any car wash. And we did like little fests, like you know, whatever, like the, the city fest. We perform on little stages. We fall off, and you know, we performed at like, the, the the correctional facility, the officers' wise club for the officers' wise. So we did all these like little shows, breakdancing wise. But a couple of the guys there, and we formed the 3D crew, and we got a DJ. And we started writing a lot of stuff. We wrote like an album worth of material. And actually, we recorded the whole album in one day. Our DJ was an older guy in the army, and he had a drum machine. And one day, we went there, drum machine turned on, he scratched records, and we just wrapped our album. That tape got destroyed. So it's like the only one of my tapes of all. I've made so much music, that's the only thing I don't have. And I still cry on the inside about it. Or on the outside sometimes, too. But. Uh, <laughs> Party on the dance floor, party people want more Time to hear something from the treacherous three Special K and LA Sunshine and the coolest of the cool Modi Treacherous three, gotta rock 85, Sugar Hill Records We had a record store in Kansas called Middle Earth Records And I would go there from time to time buy records And they carry hip hop 
But the guys there, they were rock dudes. They didn't really care about hip hop, probably. They probably rather not hear it, probably rather not sell it to. But I remember like going through there, you know, we're the young kids, we're kids, and they probably know we don't have any money. <laughs> they would play records for you in the store. So we're flipping through it. I was like, a brand new Petrobras 3? I was excited. And I had never asked them to play anything. God figured they just told me no because I'm a kid. But I couldn't resist. I was like, can you play a record? He's like, yeah, sure. And he's looking, he's like, oh, he'll be. I saw this place is like, crap. <laughs> but he'd already said it. He was like, yeah, I'll, I'll play a little bit of it. And I was like, thank you. And I went back to shop. I, I thought maybe he was just not going to do it. And he didn't do it right away. And so we were just shopping and we kind of gave up. And then all of a sudden it came on. Party on the dance floor, party people want more. Me and my, me and my cousin were just like, there's this harmonizing, acapella harmonizing beginning, but I've never heard a song really do that like that. It was like it's like four bar intro of acapella, like kind of harmonizing, then the beat drop kind of hardcore. But the thing about it, when you get into the like the solo verses, is they all introduce particular techniques that became popular later. This song is not talked about, but I find it to be a very key influence to the next generation of hip hop. Kumo D's solo verse, he does two particular things. The idea of multi-syllable rhyming is really defined in this song. It didn't start there, but this song is still pivotal. And it's not like super advanced. He rhymes like ignore it and go for it. And he rhymes like do it and to it, which has been done a lot of times before. But there's a few of them. The way he articulates them, you catch it. The way he says, getting out of hand and you can't ignore it. That he says it a certain way, you go, oh, ignore it. It rhymes. Ah. And he also talks about my poetic style of metaphor. I never knew what a metaphor was. Just a year later, that those terms, metaphor, and all that became popular with the G raps. Like 86, Cool G Rap comes out. Cool Keith, Ultramanetic Seas come out. Talk about metaphors. All that came out a year later. Because no matter how hard you try, you'll see. Although you might be cool, you're not Modi. Because it's getting out of hand, and I can't ignore it. In 85, I'm not going for it. Special K, his verse is ridiculous. Half the time he's not even rhyming, first of all. It's just like this advanced vocabulary, not rhyming. I don't have no idea what he's talking about. You know, and I'm just like, what is this guy doing? This is like so bizarre. But Cool Keith credits Special K as his biggest influence. It's clear in his verse. It's like so obvious that this is where Cool Keith got it from. He's talking about cybernetics evaluation of a raw sensation. I'm like, what? Cybernetics raw evaluations? He's like, you know, like all these things he's saying. Uh, that I was like, okay. And then LA Sunshine, he's doing this offbeat style. He's saying when I rhyme offbeat a year, year and a half later, KRS One offbeat style. So all these things, like you know, were coming like from this one song, influenced the people who were the most popular MCs the next the next generation era of hip hop. So it never gets the credit. 
and it was their last moment. It's their last song together. Maybe that was it. Like before we go, we gotta like. And like I said, they didn't really do that on their records. The records were routines and you know whatever. This was like solo verses showing our best lyrical content, and they had never really done that before. And I think that was a uh, like go out with a bang, like show what we got. And as a matter of fact, what I bet I can make you part of people react. I can make you say ho oh, and make you stop your feet. I can rock you even if I rhyme. Oh, Bob grabbing the mic and yelling, yes, y'all. I can make you act like you had no sense at all. Cause you also want to have a ball. That ain't all. I'm so tough, I bet money I can make you crawl. Cause it's positively great when I make no Graduate high school 88. Now, the biggest group I ever had was we called Wildstyle. 1990. I kind of just started focusing on my own solo career and doing production. My original studio was like a Roland 808 and I had a Casio SK5 sampler. That was a, one of the first keyboard samplers. It was like a little toy and you sample like two seconds. You had to just do it manually with your hand, you know, like over and over again. So in 1990, I was at Gan Music and someone had just dropped off a used SP-12. And I'd never seen an SP-12, I just heard it rapped about in so many songs, and I knew people used it. And I remember being like, what is that thing back there that just came in? Because I don't know, it's something about it just looked interesting. He's like, oh, I said SP-12. I was like, SP-12? I was like, how much is that thing? When the world got around that I had an SP-12, I would be walking down the street and people like, you the guy with the SP-12? And I'd be like, yeah, I'd be like, I want to make a song. I'd be like, cool. And so I would like record anybody. People be like, oh, they want to do a talent show. They want to impress their girlfriend. I'd be like, cool, come over. I just record for free. It was practice for me. And it was just whatever. It's fun. But in that, I found a lot of talented dudes. Like, really talented artists. And that's why I always started thinking about how to rebuild this crew I had and make it something. Before it was just like rapping for fun and we're a group. I'm like, how can we rap for a group and actually do something? How you gonna reason with a psycho? This is a song from a gruesome rapper Written from the blood of a psycho himself One maniac brother, headhunter Vision of a beast, the priest's worst nightmare Brought to life at the midnight hour On the darkest night on earth A mother gave birth in the surroundings of a hungry animal sector Some say my father was Hannibal Lecter Only Mars knows the truth about me Only her soul can set my soul free From the demented mind I carry I keep getting crazy visions in my head of rappers dead Guy I went to high school with, his name is Shakespeare. When he graduated in 87, he was like, I'm moving to LA to make it hip hop. And I was like, that's a crazy concept. But he did it, and he got a record deal. And he was like the first guy I knew that got a record deal. Um, this group called His Majesty, and he put a record out in 88. Then the group broke up. But he had a partner in that group called Drew Rock. And one day I'm reading the Source magazine, and I see Drew and his new group is saying poetry in the Source. Now I was like, that's Drew. I know Drew, I haven't seen Drew in years. We've made tapes together. So I remember there's a number of record label. I just called the label. I was like, hey, Drew is my friend of mine. We have lost contact. Can you just give him my number, have him give me a call? And I was like, and I'm here in Chicago. If anything I can do to help his record sell, let me know. And they're like, yeah, can you do free promotions? We'll mail you posters and stickers and records. And you just give this stuff away. I'm like, I can do that. And so I hung up the phone and I was like, that's it. That's how I'll meet people who work in the in the industry. And I went and bought a fax machine. I went and ordered letterheads, business cards, and I just started calling, faxing every record label. And my whole idea was that when I mail a demo tape out, it won't be some record label. It's going to be a certain guy who knows me because I work for them at a record label. So 
that's when Rage Productions grew into Rage Promotions, and that was in '92. That was my first time like entering the business of music, and then that foot in the door just basically left everything else. One of my jobs for like the promotions thing was give new music to like local press. There was like the Flypaper was a hip hop magazine here. So I would give them new things to review. And I would talk to them, hang out. And one day they're like, you know a lot about hip hop. Why don't you just write for us? Write about hip hop? Alright, I'll try it. I wrote a review for the first Fuji's album and Original Flavors album and YZ's second album for the, one of the issues. And I wrote that and then that was my start to being a writer in hip hop. My other thing was give new music to radio stations. So I would go to HBK, GCI sometimes, CRX and all these stations, KKC. Because I lived in Chicago, my last stop home was NUR. I was on the way home. NUR was the only hip hop I got on the radio when I was in high school. It was my only connection to Chicago hip hop was that station. So I had a personal uh, love for that station. So I would go there, I would hang out, and to get my records played that I was promoting, I would always like bring rare stuff. I always you know, had collections of tapes. So I would be like, I got that rare Kumo D show or Cool Keith demo or whatever. And I'd bring that and I would hang out and sometimes they put me on air and I'd talk about hip hop. And, and so just one day they were doing a hip hop show and the host didn't show up. I got a phone call. I was like, hey, so-and-so can't make it. Can you come host a radio show? I was like, host a radio show? <laughs> and then that guy never came back and I did, did my show on NUR for seven years. Time travel. It's the caffeine, the nicotine, the milligrams of tar. It's my habitat. It needs to be clean. It's my car. It's the fast talk they use to abuse and feed my brain. It's the cat box. It needs to be changed. It's the pain. It's women. It's the plight for power. It's government. It's the way you're giving knowledge slow with thought control and subtle hints. It's rubbing it, itching it. It's applying cream. It's the foreigners sightseeing with high beams. It's in my dreams. It's the monsters that I conjure. It's the marijuana. It's the embarrassment, displacement. It's where I wander. It's my genre. It's Madonna's videos. It's game shows. It's cheap liquor, blunts. It's bumper stickers with rainbows. It's angels, demons, gods. It's through the time travel in my promotions company. I took a trip to New York in '97 to go to Rocksteady Crew Anniversary to get new music. My co-host, Jay Pratt, was with me. We got back from New York. We're going through all of our bags of tapes and free stuff. And whack, that's whack, that's all right, that's whack. He's like, I got something that's really dope. And I'm like, you got the only good CD in New York? Sure, let me, well, let me hear it. He puts it on, I'm like, whoa, this is really good. And I snatched it out of his hand, I'm reading it. It's a number, called the number, I was like, my man got this CD, I do a radio show, Give me a, send me a copy, and that was Atmosphere's first record. On and on and on and on, the list goes on and on and on and on. The list goes on and on and on and on. The list goes on and on and on and on. It's all The funny thing is that we're from Chicago and New York. They're from Minneapolis in New York. He gets it from Sadiq, the label CEO in New York, brings back Chicago, and that's how that connection started. I played the music on my radio show. That made Rhyme Sayer's biggest market outside Minneapolis, Chicago. Jay Bird was living here with me. He was managing Rubber Room. And so we go, hey, 
Rhyme says, we'll bring you to Chicago to perform if you bring Rubber Room to Minneapolis to perform. We swap shows and the connection between Chicago and Minneapolis Underground came from that. And then, of course, Jay Bird got hired there and I got hired there. So this little thing just became my life, basically. To my people in the audience, I go straight to the point. I'm not enjoying this stage that you're living in. Rage you have driven in from the depths of hell. Why are you sinning in life? That's a home. Maintain control. These be the key. Unlock your soul. To the black, to the Sir Ibu of Divine Force. I'm the peacemaker. Peacemaker was a song he put out. His solo track, '89. It's all about race. It was funny because at that time it was like it was sort of a pro-black era. Big in like the whole like five percent. Nation of Islam and that. And he was Islamic. And I remember like, you know, at the time, like hip hop was so influential to me that I started picking up things. I remember I was thinking about converting to Islam. I was just trying to find my direction spiritually. And that was like something I feel like I related more to than anything else. In his song, he's just like, I'm not anti-white, nor am I pro-black. We don't need that, you know, there's only one race, the human race. And that dish yourself, that's a disgrace. He was just saying these things that like was kind of going against the grain of what was popular for that time to do. And I remember being like, that's great. He was making a statement, but stylistically, his voice and the way he was writing was all like, Top notch. Like this dude should have been next to the greats at that time. Larry Davis, he knew what time it is. He didn't let him kill him, so he went fugitive. On the run with a gun, now he's locked up. But he's alive and well and not boxed up. Rumor has it that I'm a troublemaker. But the truth of the matter, I'm the peacemaker. This song to me is like one of my all-time favorite hip-hop songs. I mean the beat's just a straight loop, nothing special about the beat. People would did these kind of songs, talking about these kind of things, but something about the way he did it to me just really resonated differently. There's one thing he's like, it's about being the devil, and he's like, if you're offended or uncomfortable, that only shows you're the devil that I'm talking to. Like, if, if these words hurt your feelings, then you must be the devil. You know, that's the only person who will be hurt by these words, but it's the truth. You know, it's like, he's just saying these things that I was like, okay. I like this guy. And I was always shocked that his album never came out. I couldn't believe it. How can someone be that good? And that was it. If I was going to think about who's a great writer and a great songwriter to strive to be, Peacemaker would be one of those songs I would go to to get that inspiration. And it's funny because like I know people like probably go like, but he's not one of the greats. Like I, I never do like the KRS-1s or the Rakims or the G-Raps or the Slick Ricks, who are, I agree, are amongst the greats of all time. 
it's not that I don't think that the KRS and Rakims and G Raps are important to me. They are. They're as important or more important in some cases. But I also cover these guys because they get left out. I've always been good at one particular thing. I never let the media influence what I liked. Even hip-hop fans, I feel, do that. Listen to like anybody who does an old-school mix on the radio or whatever. It's like the same 20 artists every time. You know, it's Run DMC, Sucker MCs, and it's De La Soul, Be Myself and I, it's Tribe Called Quest, and it's this. It's like... Back when this was happening, there was a point in time where Sarai Boo was as popular as Rakim. And I'm, I'm being a little dramatic, maybe that's not a good example. But like a time when Chill Rob G, his song was as popular as the Kane song at that time. Not Kane himself, but as popular as the Kane song. I even are better, considered better than the Kane song because no one knew that Chill Rob G was never going to make another album and Kane was going to have a career. No one knew that then. Even people who are considered are, are hardcore hip-hop fans let that affect their memory. And I think that's a big problem within hip-hop. We have always let those kind of things dictate the course of history. My friends were as big a friend I boo as I was. They'd be like, oh, I think I remember the song Peacemaker. I think I remember that one. But they'll remember, of course, Rakim and Cool G Rap and you know all the big songs made now they remember. But they forgot Peacemaker because history forgot Peacemaker. Last song, Funky Town Pros. The song's called Fallen. This is probably one of my favorite hip hop albums of all time. Reaching a level of assassination, 1991. Also on Island Records, like Sorry Boo. It's a super creative album. I mean, I remember it was the first tape I played so much that the tape just fell apart. And I kept the parts because I, because I just, it was just so important to me. I just kept the parts. Like, Every time I would listen to it, I would find some new hidden meaning in his songs. And I, it was really hard to pick one song from the album to, to put here. But I knew I had to pick one song because of how important that album was to me. Like, And not even just lyrically, just musically. The, the producer, Devastating, was like super creative in his sampling. Like Everything about this record to me is great. song Fallen is great because it's showing his skill as a visual writer and his skill personification. He's talking about, you know, artists falling off, commercialism, or thinking at the top, whatever. But there's certain things he does in there that is like, that blew my mind. Like, he has this thing in the last verse where he says, um, and at first I just didn't get it because it's not like he's just doing something very random. And he's like, try the world on for size. Pray, close your eyes. Grab something that flies. Too late. Surprise. Basically describing what your brain's doing when you're having a long fall. That's like how you feel you fell off a building. By relating it to how you feel you falling off in hip-hop. Then he re-does it at the last part of the song uh, where he says, uh, screaming and calling, time stalling, gravity drawing you in, see you then, you're falling. Like, it's another way to say the process of falling. Rather than just say, you're falling off, he goes that long, drawn out way to say, you're falling off. And that definitely influenced my writing. I was like, how can I say this the longest way possible? <laughs> like the weather girl said, it's raining men. 
punk fools are falling like a trend is in. It's just a mess, their flesh is so fragile, I hear their bones rattle. Never thought face to face they would meet the shadow. Never agitated, just motivated. Parachutes are shot down, either way you're gonna fill the ground. So try the world on the sides, pray, close your eyes, grab onto something that flies. Too late, surprise, you gotta be down to be around. Funky town's the battleground, those who stand up are getting shut down. Screaming and calling, time stalling, gravity drawing you in, see you then, you're falling. There's things about his that I didn't get for like not even just the song, but like he says in the song, um, my rhymes are locked in a vault. Only seven ways to get in. I've written an ink pen, still can't find them or think then. I spent years figuring out the lock in a vault, seven ways to get in, think then. The seven holes to the head to get to the brain. You know, so your senses, you gotta see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, then you get to my style. When I discovered that five years later, <laughs> I was like, this guy's the greatest. <laughs> I stopped rhyming about 94, 95. Just got burnt out. You know, I've been doing it then for like, It was more or less like the industry, which I kind of wish I didn't let that happen, but like, you know, I had a few like trying to shop demos and the first thing we ever did for a demo was 88 and we sent it to a label, Atlantic Records, and, and that was right when NWA was the hottest thing, 88, NWA and Too Short. I was a fan of NWA and I kind of liked Too Short, but they heard our demo and they were like, hey, we like your demo, but right now we're only selling groups that are like NWA Too Short. Can you do something like that? I remember feeling very insulted, like, you like me, but can I be them? And that was kind of the first turning point of me kind of want to rebel against the industry. And you know, it kept getting worse and worse and worse as things got more in that direction. And so by 94, I was like, I don't even care about rapping. And I just started producing more groups. Then, But like in 97, I got inspired and I wrote a whole album between 97 and 2001. I intentionally wrote it to be the last thing I ever did. Mm -hmm. I wrote it, got all the beats, but I never recorded it. Since then, I recorded like probably like 70% of it, the rough drafts for my own listening pleasure, but it was like meant to be the last thing I ever would do as a, as a lyricist. And it's called the, the Genesis of Genius. Ultramagnetic and statisonic, Africa, the Mata, and the Soul Sonic. Yeah, MC ID, Public Enemy. Boogie Down, MC Share, MC Ram, Probably my biggest, like, uh, rule or whatever in hip-hop is, is fan first. I'm always a fan first. That's most like the most important thing to me. Uh, and that same kind of token and line of thinking, it's like what's important to me is that even though I do a lot of things where like people consider me a teacher or a well-versed or historian or whatever, which I don't usually use those kind of terms. I also like to always be a student. To me, it's all about always learning more and, and then sharing more information. And so like some of the things I'm really excited about is for like 15 years, I've been working on this like uh, project called Redefine Hip Hop. Like I said earlier, like you know, this idea that we often let the media dictate the definitions of what's happening in the culture, past, present, and presumably the future if we don't change it. I've been like finding Saraibu and telling the story that's never been heard. It's a little misleading, but the untold stories of hip hop are the rarely told stories of hip hop. And I'm writing a book. The book's called My Core Mathematics. And it's basically me studying the evolution of various styles and techniques in hip-hop. 
kind of something to talk about today. Like, you know, the chapter about the history of the multisyllable and how that advanced in hip-hop, the history of storytelling, history of ghostwriting. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. I mean, hip-hop. I think about this a lot, ongoing thoughts about what hip-hop has taught me. When you go through certain things in your life, hard times, even good times, but hard times, struggles, confusion, a lot of times music can be your escape. And that's what hip-hop was for me. But at the same time, I was going there, it was also enlightening me, enriching me, and teaching me things. And it made me want to go out and explore different things, whether it was like, uh, spiritually, religion, being a vegetarian, that came from hip-hop. And I, sometimes I, I won't even realize certain things I'm doing, I'm like, oh, that came from hip-hop. I, I heard that in a song, so I did this thing, or I tried this thing. You know, people say, like, the lyrics don't influence your actions. But they actually they do, but sometimes it can be in a good way as well. And it, it, it's up to you as individual to determine how much that is. But I mean, like, I think that's what, why it matters, because music is so powerful. And music does influence and help you in times of crisis. It's so diverse what music can do for you.